So we are continuing in a consecutive study of the book of Romans, and you who have joined us today, you've joined us uh, sort of in the middle, approaching the end of chapter 2 of Paul's letter to the church at Rome. This is installment number 12 in our series, and today we learn that only Jews may be saved. How about that? Only Jews may be saved. Yeah, so let's dig in. Romans chapter 2, verse 25. For indeed, circumcision is of value if you practice the law. But if you are a transgressor of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. So, if the uncircumcised man keeps the requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? And he who is physically uncircumcised, if he keeps the law... Will he not judge you who through having the letter of the law and circumcision are a transgressor of the law? For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that which is of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter, and his praise is not from men, but from God. This is the Lord's Word. To understand what this is about, you should know that the circumcision of male Hebrews was God's idea and was first presented to Abraham around 2,000 years before Paul wrote his letter to the Romans. When the Lord intercepted Abraham from his pagan way of life, he called him into a relationship with him, the living Lord, and he said this in Genesis 17, now, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you, throughout your, their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised, and you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin, and it shall be the sign of the covenant between me and you. Now, this is always an awkward subject to speak to, but uh, I, I do have a favorite joke uh, on the subject, so you get to hear that today. Don Ortberg tells about uh, what it must have been like for Abraham to hear this word from God, uh, where God says the sign of the covenant will be circumcision, and he thinks that maybe Abraham paused and said plaintively back to the Lord, you know, Noah got a rainbow. <laughs> Uh, it strikes one as rather odd of God to assign this as the sign of His covenant. But He does go on to tell us a good bit about what is represented by this sign of circumcision. And, and note, it is a sign. And a sign, by its very nature, is intended to draw attention not to itself, but to something else. So when you drive down the highway and... Uh, you see one of these large yellow signs, you know what that means, don't you? That very close to that sign, there will be a fine Scottish restaurant where you can purchase chicken nuggets, yeah, and soft drinks and french fries that used to be good but aren't anymore. Now, <laughs> that may interest you, but the sign does not. The sign simply points you to the restaurant, gains attention for the business, and is therefore truly valuable to both the owner and to the customer. So it would seem to us ludicrous for someone to mistake the sign for the store. If you are hungry, 
you do not want food signs. You want actual food. If you need a doctor, you don't want signs telling you where the hospital is. You want to see an actual person. The signs are only valuable as pointers. But amazingly, within the religious world, we find many who have come to place their hope, their confidence in the signs rather than in the reality to which those signs point. Some there are who trust in their circumcision. Some there are who trust in their baptism. Some there are who trust in Holy Communion. But these are all signs, and signs must always be distinguished from the reality they are intended to represent. Signs find their value and their purpose only in that reality to which they point. Got that? When we take the Lord's Supper at the end of the service today, we are pointing to the cross of Jesus, to His death on our behalf, and His shed blood on our behalf. That's a big deal, but don't confuse the elements with the thing that they are to remind us of. So that is what circumcision is called, a sign, because that is what it does. In Scripture, both Old Testament and New, God supplies us with visible and tangible signs which represent and point us to invisible, intangible realities. And, and these are sometimes called in church circles sacraments. Maybe you come from a background where they're called ordinances. In the New Testament, we have the sacraments of the Lord's Supper and of baptism. These are signs that point the believing heart to the real spiritual feeding on the body of Christ, to the genuine and powerful washing of the soul by the Holy Spirit. The Scripture speaks, for instance, of two baptisms. Two. There is baptism by water. That's one. And what is the other baptism? Baptism by the Spirit of God. One is the sign, the other is the reality. Water, then, is the symbol of God's cleansing gift of the Spirit. It is the visible, which preaches a sermon to the eyes about what God does by His Spirit in our hearts. So there's a physical baptism, and there is a spiritual baptism. The same was true with circumcision. Several passages of Scripture make this obvious in Deuteronomy 10. Moses is preaching there to the people, and he says in verse 15, On your fathers did the Lord set his affection to love them, and he chose their descendants after them, even you above all peoples as it is this day. So, circumcise your, what's the next word? Heart, and stiffen your neck no longer. That's interesting. Moses uses what be, could be viewed here as, as an absurd physical depiction. Circumcise your heart. Jeremiah does the same thing. Jeremiah 4, verse 4, circumcise yourselves to the Lord. Remove the foreskins of your heart. Well, what, what can that mean? That, that's sort of like saying comb your elbow. It doesn't make any sense on, on first blush, but it only makes sense if you recognize there to be a spiritual circumcision, which there is. It is the internal reality to which the external sign is intended to point us. So this carries us to our next major heading, which asks the question, what does circumcision mean? We see that it is a sign. What is the reality to which that sign is pointing us? And as I answer that, I want you to begin to see how circumcision parallels in meaning the ordinance of water baptism. 
Indeed, it is our understanding as Presbyterians that even as the Old Testament Passover gave way to New Testament communion, so Old Testament circumcision gives way to New Testament baptism. Their function, their meaning, their symbolism, all of those are the same. And what I say here today of circumcision, we could say equally well of baptism. And so we begin with the proposition that circumcision is the symbol of the cleansing work of the Spirit of God. Look at Colossians 2, where clearly it connects baptism and circumcision and says there in verse 11, in Him, in Christ, you were also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self, ruled by the flesh, was put off when you were circumcised by Christ. You didn't know that happened to you, did you? But it did. And what is that circumcision? The putting off of the sinful nature. Circumcision, like baptism, it is a cleansing ritual. The removal of flesh from the male organ represents the removal of sin from the soul. And what does a circumcision of heart produce in a life? Well, Deuteronomy 30, verse 6 helps us. The Lord your God will circumcise your heart, the heart of your descendants, to what? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, so that you may live. So spiritual circumcision produces a cleansing of one's soul. All right, was it possible to be spiritually circumcised and not physically circumcised? Was that possible? Yes. Which counts most, the internal or the external? Well, what counts most is that which is within. In our passage in Romans 2 again, verse 28, he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. He is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that which is of the heart by the Spirit, and by the le- not by the letter, and his praise is not from men, but from God. And I don't see how this could be much clearer than that verse makes it. You could easily, in those verses, take out the word circumcision and install the word baptism. He is not a Christian who is one outwardly, nor is baptism that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Christian who is one inwardly, and baptism is that which is of the heart by the Spirit. So like baptism, circumcision is a rite of symbolic cleansing, setting visibly before us the purifying work of the Spirit of God. With that background in mind, let's follow the argument of Paul as he deals with the final flimsy fortress of the confused fellow Jews who believed that all was well with their souls if they had just been circumcised. Instead, the apostle says, no, if you are a transgressor of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. Uh-oh. And here we deal with the plain reality that religious ritual, whether it's Jewish ritual, Christian ritual, Hindu ritual, none of that can save. It cannot compensate for a life of sin. Now, if the technology works, we've got 30 seconds to show you from a famous movie, a movie that came out a half century ago. It is the baptism scene from The Godfather, the original uh, movie. Those of you who saw the film, uh, do you remember what was going on 
as Michael Corleone was having his baby baptized. Setting this up for you. What was going on while his baby was being baptized was that his goons were out around the town murdering all of the rival mob bosses. But here, here's the baptism scene. The, we're not showing the uh, murder scenes here in church, but uh, <laughs> you can go to those later if you want. But it's an interesting juxtaposition in that movie. Uh, the religious sinner, right? Happy to do the sacrament, but disinterested in the moral demands of true faith. Paul could say, your baptism has become unbaptism. Basically, he's telling you that the ritual means nothing without the substance of the faith and devotion behind it. But then we read about the converse. What if someone skips the ritual but demonstrates a heart that has been washed and transformed? Verse 26, if the uncircumcised man keeps the requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? And the implied answer to that question is yes. Paul imagines a Gentile who has come to have a purified heart, who walks in faithful obedience to the Word of Christ, which necessarily means that he has put his faith in Christ. Oh, the Jew, though, did not like to hear this. But Paul presses the point home to the Jewish reader in the next verse. He who is physically uncircumcised, if he keeps the law, will he not judge you who, throw, who though having the law... Uh, and circumcision are a transgressor of the law. I like the way the NLT puts it here. Uh, it says, uncircumcised Gentiles who, keeps, who keep God's law will condemn you Jews who are circumcised and possess God's law, but don't obey it. And you may say, Pastor, is that really possible? It is not only possible, but the Apostle Paul was watching this happen in his own day. Paul was observing his Jewish brethren rejecting the Messiah while Gentiles were coming to faith and devoting their hearts to God. Now, thankfully, not all Jews were rejecting Jesus, and not all Gentiles were accepting Him. But the first century rang in a new day when some Gentiles and um, some Jews and many Gentiles we're coming together as one in this thing that we like to call the church, which was taking over the world. Now, here is how Paul described it in Ephesians 2, where we again encounter circumcision. Chapter 2, verse 11, don't forget that you Gentiles used to be outsiders. You were called uncircumcised heathens by the Jews who were proud of their circumcision, even though it affected only their bodies and not their hearts. In those days, you were living apart from Christ. You were excluded from citizenship among the people of Israel, and you did not know the covenant promises God had made to them. You lived in this world without God and without hope. Next slide. But now, you who have been united with Christ Jesus, once you were far away, 
from God, but now you have been brought near to Him through the blood of Christ, for Christ Himself has brought peace to us. He united Jews and Gentiles into one people when in His own body on the cross He broke down the wall of hostility that separated us. He did this by ending the system of law with its commandments and regulations. He made peace between Jews and Gentiles by creating in Himself one new people from the two groups. Together as one body, Christ reconciled both groups to God by means of His death on the cross, and our hostility toward each other was put to death. Notice there in verse 15, it refers to a new people. The old people of God were essentially of one race. The new people of God, they were international. But the roots of it all go back to the covenant God made with Abraham and to the Jewish heritage. Romans would later tell us that if we are Gentiles and Christians, that we are grafted on to grafted by God on to the thing that God was doing in His kingdom, which was Jewish. And I'm fine with that. It means that I am now one with Jewish believers. Essentially, I am a Jew. Shalom. You're supposed to say that back to me. <laughs> and also to you. That's the, isn't, that the, isn't that the line, the Episcopalian? And also, anyway, shalom. I am a Jew. You are a Jew. That is, if my heart has been made new by the grace of Jesus. Verse 26 speaks of the Gentile who keeps the requirement of the law. Now, this can be tricky because Paul is laboring here to show us that we have all broken the law. So is this just hypothetical, this idea of the Gentiles that are keeping the law of God? Is this just hypothetical, or are there actually Gentiles who do obey? Commentators are split on this, and I'm in the camp that says it is not hypothetical. On their own, in their flesh, precisely zero Gentiles and zero Jews walk according to the law. But once one is forgiven in Christ, once one is made new by the Spirit, we have a new situation. To me, the answer to this puzzle is given in Romans chapter 8. There we read these beautiful words, verse 1, there is therefore, read it out loud with me please, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Our legal status has been repaired. Our debt is paid, we are free from guilt, but there is more. And so the next three verses, for the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. Uh, for what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and as an offering for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh. Follow along. So that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So Paul is telling us that if you are in Christ, you are a new creation. The Spirit of God is in control, and He leads you to become a law keeper. The requirement of the law is now being fulfilled. How? By the ministry of the Holy Spirit, who now leads us and empowers us to walk in faithful purity. So as we admit our disobedience, and as we trust in Christ, as we put our hope in the gospel of grace, you and I then are equipped to live a life of obedience to our Savior, not sinless obedience, but sincere obedience. 
And this is great, great news. Amen? All right. So the apostle wraps up our chapter with an important distinction between the inward and the outward. Verse 28, he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that which is of the heart by the Spirit. So I ask you, who wants to be a Jew? Yeah. (laughs) The assumption here is that we all want to be a Jew. The Jew is God's man, God's woman. The Jew is the one who gets to be with the Lord. But who is the true Jew? That's your title for today. That's the question. There's a a new church in the North Hills of Pittsburgh giving them free press today. It's called True North Church. Perhaps, uh, that's an interesting name for church, I thought, True North. What does that mean? Uh, Perhaps we could go uh, go with that idea. We could be True Jew Church. What do you think? Call us True Jew Presbyterian. Would that, would that mark it well? I don't know. Well, we can make it even better. True Jew Presbyterian, home of the circumcised hearts. <laughs> that should bring in the crowds, don't you think? But that's the right understanding of what genuine saving faith gives us. We saw earlier, Deuteronomy 30 and verse 6 again, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart, the heart of your descendants, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, that you may live. So what does a circumcised heart give you? What's it say? What does it give you? Love for the Lord, and is love an external work or an internal affection? You know the answer to that. It is the latter. This is all about a transformation on the inside of a person. The heart is changed by the Spirit. See verse 29. It speaks of of the heart, by the Spirit. And Paul then says it is not by the letter. The letter substitutes here for the written law. The law could not change us, but the Spirit does. So John Piper puts it like this. Listen to this quote. Without the Spirit, we either reject the law of God out of hand, or we change it into something we can manage. And in either case, we lose, and the law condemns us. You can become a transgressor of the law by rejecting it or by trying to keep it in your own strength. Law minus the Spirit equals, first, external religious ritual like circumcision. Two, the need for the praise of people to keep you going. And three, death because the law becomes mere letter that kills. Then he says, law plus the Spirit equals internal circumcision of heart. Secondly, satisfaction in the praise of God, even if no human approves you. And three, it leads to life because the Spirit unites us to God in love. All that quote from Brother Piper, good job, Brother John. That rather sums it up nicely, I think. And so the primary point Paul is making here is that the inward, not the outward, is what truly matters. The heart of the matter is the matter of the heart. The heart of the matter is the matter of the heart. Sadly, throughout the history of the church, when true spirit-wrought devotion has become rare, more and more people look to the rituals to support them. If you do that, oh, don't, don't read Paul. Paul will mess you up 
Galatians 6, verse 14, As for me, may I never boast about anything except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because of that cross, my interest in this world has been crucified, and the world's interest in me has also died. It doesn't matter whether we have been circumcised or not. What counts is whether we have been transformed into a new creation. May God's peace and mercy be upon all who live by this principle. They are the new people of God. You could also say the true Jew. Let that sink in. What is it that matters? It is the death of Jesus on our behalf. It is our internal transformation. Who is the true Jew? One who boasts only in Christ and lives only by the Spirit. So I am a Jew. Are you? Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. And I am one of them, and so are you, if you have trusted Christ. Little tweak. You don't need to applaud. <laughs> Finally, our chapter wraps up with this. His praise is not from men, but from God. The term Jew, by the way, was derived from the name Judah, which means praised. One of the Lord's primary criticisms of Jewish religion was on this point, if you recall, that the Jews of his day were looking to be praised for their devotion, but they were looking to be praised by whom? By each other, by, by the cool kids, by, by the Twitter mob, I guess you could say nowadays. They did their pious stuff to be seen and honored by men. And this is super common. It explains so much that we see in our culture today. But it is entirely wrong as an orientation of the heart. God deliver us from this need and longing to be praised of men. The spiritual man, the spiritual woman, the true Jew is only interested, well, at least primarily interested in the approval of the Lord who sees the heart. And that is where Paul leaves us at the end of Romans 2. Hopefully desperate for the renewing the purifying, the saving work of the Holy Spirit of God in our lives. So let's seek that together as we close in prayer and prepare for the table of the Lord. And so, Father, as we reflect upon the teaching of the apostle here, what the rituals of this world and our religion and Jewish religion and any religion do not give us. We thank you, Lord, that in your mercy you do give to those who earnestly seek you, that your Spirit comes and washes us of our guilt, takes away our, our incapacities to see you and hear your voice and to live for you, and makes us indeed a new creation. So we invite the circumcision of our hearts. We invite the baptism of your Spirit that we would love you with all our heart, all our mind, all our soul, all our strength. And even as we now partake of this outward ceremony of communion that you have given us, we pray that the inward work of your Spirit would be very real in our lives. That as we take of his body and drink of his blood, that we would indeed put our trust solely and completely in Jesus and leave this place as a result more confident in him and more committed to his ways. 
Come and commune with us, gracious Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.